But tomorrow night at sundown begins the Day of Atonement, the most holy day in a Jewish life. Even if a Jew is nominal at best, you're going to see synagogues tomorrow will be filled. It's kind of like our Christmas. I heard the rapture is going to happen tomorrow. Is that true? Uh, I, no. Okay. <laughs> I just want to know what that Yeah. 2024. So, bottom line is we see that synagogues are going to be filled because even if they're not religious, they're going to go. Many synagogues in Israel and bigger cities were actually renting out buildings because they're going to have so many extra people tomorrow night. It is. It's all based on tradition. It's based on the twisting of scriptures and a twisting of what Yom Kippur is truly all about. And it is, I think, as I said before, one of the most joyous, and believe it or not, even for them as well, but it is one of the most holy in joyous days of the year, but yet it is one of those that they're going to restrict themselves and fast, and many of them will not even watch TV or do anything on Monday. No, no, they will abstain from a lot of different things. So, you may ask, well, what is the difference between this and, say, Passover? The biggest difference that I can see is this, is Passover was for the individual. Yom Kippur is a national redemption. A time for the whole nation to be forgiven. It is a time that strangers among them can be brought back in if they have repented. Throughout these 10 days of awe, which is what the last 10 days have been called, the 10 days of awe, this time of repentance or teshuva, it is your last chance. And if you have desired to repent and whatnot, you get to come in on the Day of Atonement and your slate is clean. I remember being in the Lutheran church growing up that we would take communion. And growing up, I had this idea as a kid that, Almost like you would take your pile of sins that you gained up over the week and you'd go up to the communion rail, receive forgiveness, and then you go back and you start all over again. Now, that was wrong, by the way. <laughs> but that is kind of the attitude that they have about Yom Kippur. It's a day where your, your slate is wiped clean. There is some truth to that. But because in the Old Testament, that is somewhat how it operated. But in the New, we have a greater sacrifice that we're going to talk about that didn't just cover our sins, but took them away forever. And so, I'm going to just give you kind of a a translated portion of what is called the Kol Nidre, which is what they are going to be praying much longer than what I'm giving you here 
but to give you a flavor of what's going through their minds tomorrow night. Forgive the entire congregation, the children of Israel, the stranger among them, for the entire people sin unintentionally. Please pardon the sins of this nation in accordance with the greatness of your loving kindness. And Adonai said, I have pardoned them as you have asked. They end with all of that being, Adonai said you have been pardoned. A lot of truth to that for those who are in Christ Jesus. So, this was the one day a year in the Old Testament when the high priest had access to go into the most holy place of the tabernacle. That perfect cube. You know, the tabernacle had the most holy place, the holy place, and then the outer court. Only this day did the, and only the high priest could enter into this most holy place. As you're going to see tonight, this is the day that the high priest has entered the most holy place and has now given us access to go with him. That we are now seated with him in the most holy place in the heavenly realms at the mercy seat, the throne of God. Scripture tells us that we, seat, or we are seated at the right hand of the throne of God with Jesus right there. No wonder this is a joyous day. You would think that with all of the affliction and fasting and all of that, that it should be kind of a really a downer. But that's not the case. It's quite the opposite. Sin separates us from the Holy One, but this is the day that things have been made right. And for many Christians, this day is really basically irrelevant. And I hope that that changes. I hope that they realize how relevant this day is and how Christ-centered it is, was, and always will be. We get it. From Leviticus 23, Leviticus 16, I'm just going to read a little bit of what Scripture says so you get a flavor of the day um, from what Scripture says. This shall be a statute forever for you, not just until Jesus comes. In the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, that's tomorrow, you shall afflict your souls and do no work at all whether a native of your own country or a stranger who dwells among you. For on that day the priest shall make atonement for you, to cleanse you, that you may be clean from all your sins before the Lord. It is a Sabbath of solemn rest for you, and you shall afflict your souls. It is a statute forever. And the priest who is anointed and consecrated to minister as priest in his father's place shall make atonement and put on the linen clothes, the holy garments." Sounds very much like a downer, like, oh, can't wait to celebrate that day, <laughs> right? And yet, to the Jews, it is the most holiest and one of the most recognized and waited for days of the year. Kids love it because you're not, it's not illegal to drive, but it's kind of like an unwritten law. Hardly any vehicles will be driving around in Jerusalem. So kids 
will be riding their bikes out in the streets. That's why the kids love it. The, the streets are filled with bike riders, kids riding their bikes in their neighborhoods uh, because it's safe. And so this is you know, kind of how they interpret that. Fasting is another aspect of it as well. But scripture didn't give you, you know, specific guidelines. God is not a sadist. And I think that the call to confession and repentance here is not supposed to be a form of masochism. That's not the God we serve. It is a call to repentance, which is not resignation and despair over our weaknesses, over our sin, as great as that may be. But rather, it, it, it's more of a renewal and hope because it's a chance to start again. Like I said, they had that idea of bringing their pile of sins and starting over, but now we realize that, yes, we still repent. You see, part of the Christian life today, in many churches, we've made it repentance is null and void, and we just praise God because he loves us. Have you seen the lack of joy in the churches today? By leaving out the repentance? See, it's important for us to repent of our sins even today. Right? Even in the New Testament, it says, if you say you have no sin, you deceive yourself and the truth is not in you. And so this repentance isn't masochism. It is... It's a reflection of how sin-filled we can be, but yet it's a remembrance of the renewal that our sins have been wiped away. And you can't have that full joy if you don't have the affliction of the soul first. So, very important that the purpose of repentance is not retaliation, but restoration. Just kind of let that set for a minute. It is not retaliation, but restoration. It's not revenge, but repair. There's a Hebrew phrase from the Talmud, tikkum olam, basically means repair the world, or repair of the world. That's what this day is described as, a repair of the world. That's something to celebrate. No wonder it's the greatest day of the year. Notice the world, the national aspect to this as well. And as I said before, guys, this is the greatest love story you're ever going to read in Scripture. The most unassuming love story in Scripture a day of atonement that seems to be viewed as this really somber, bloody, just kind of negative day almost. But it's not. Let me show you here just what the Bible says in regards to sacrifice as well. And I think that we know we went through the book of Hebrew. In Hebrews 10... One, it says, for this reason it can never, by the same sacrifices repeatedly, endlessly, year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. In this context, he is talking about the Day of Atonement. We'll, we'll review that again here in a little bit. 
verse 4 says, because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Aren't you glad we're not under that anymore? That it's impossible to take away sins? In chapter 7, verses 18 and 19, it talks about the former regulations. The former is set aside because it was weak and useless. Now, the modern-day church has said, see, we're done with all the biblical festivals, we're done with the Old Testament, because that was weak and useless. Boy, they misunderstand this, and they take this completely out of context. If you go read this in Hebrews, the entire context of it is all about this day, the Day of Atonement, and how it was weak and useless with these goats and these animals and the priests going in year after year after year. But now we have a high priest who went and did this, and it is greater, and it is strong, and it is useful. The whole point was comparing the Day of Atonement to Yeshua living out that Day of Atonement for you, being it. It goes on, for the law made nothing perfect, and a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. Again, when we went through Hebrews, we went through this in great detail, but just to remind you, the law made nothing perfect, but the law was not bad. The law was never meant to make everything perfect. The law couldn't make everything perfect. It only brought you to the deliverance. Much like I say repentance, you can't understand the grace of God without repentance. You cannot understand the mercy of God without the law of God. And both are still needed to this very day. That's why Romans tells us that the law was added so that grace might increase. The better hope, as Hebrews would call it. That is what atonement is pointing us to. Hebrews is taking the Day of Atonement and saying, look at Jesus, look at Jesus, look at Yeshua, and rejoice. Because there is something that is a better hope now. Alright? In Bible times, it was, as I said, the high priest's responsibility to go into the most holy place on this day with the blood of the goats... They would speak the name Yahweh ten times throughout this ritual that they would do. They would bow down and worship each time. There was just a whole ceremony that was uh, gone through. They wear special garments, which I'll talk about in a moment. A, a sacrifice had to be made first for the, the priest that was doing all of this and then for the people. And they would make 43 trips in some ways. There's different records and whatnot, but some say 43 trips back and forth. In essence, what I want you to get on this is this was the busiest day for the high priest. He did all the work. And you know what the people did? Nothing. Nothing. I'll get to that here in a moment. Today, as I said, it is a Sabbath of solemn and rest, a solemn rest to afflict the soul, and it is something that is to last forever, according to the Bible. So that is why tomorrow night on the 10th of Tishri, when the 10 days of awe or the 10 days of repentance come to an end, everybody's going to go to their synagogues, and they will have what is 
called the, the vidu or the, the confession of sins, the kol nidre, um, all of these things. And basically what it is, I'll give you a little taste of it here in a moment. They repeat the same prayer ten times just as the high priest would say Yahweh's name, name to, to invite, invite his pardon did ten times. Tomorrow night before as well, they're going to have this great family dinner. The family is invited over. They're going to have them a great feast because they're getting ready for a fast. So let's pig out before the fast. And they do it together as a family. Today or tomorrow night, you will see many out in the streets of Jerusalem. They will have chickens and swing them around their head. Yeah. They swing chickens around their head. Sometimes they'll tie bags of money to a rope and swing the money around their head. Just rituals. The Bible says nothing about this, but it seems almost pagan, doesn't it? Are the chickens alive or dead? Usually alive. Usually alive. They're alive chickens. Yeah. <laughs> Keeps them in control. But what they do this for, again, just a man-made tradition. It's all it is. I'm not, not saying you should do it. As a matter of fact, I say you shouldn't do it. Um, yeah. But what they do is then they usually go give that chicken to somebody else or the money to somebody else. It's an act of charity. Now, I'm not saying that you shouldn't have acts of charity, but what I am saying is this. The whole point in why they do this is truly satanic. They do this because this is an act, an effort that they're putting into life to be forgiven. I've mentioned this before, but one of the saddest things is when I take people to the Temple Institute in Jerusalem, the Orthodox Jews, and by the way, Christians have given the money for most of this, which is sad. But the Orthodox Jews... I asked them, when I was there with some group, I asked them, I said, if the temple has been destroyed and this was the day where the sacrifice was made to make national forgiveness and atonement, how are you forgiven today? And the answer, since about 70 AD, is this. Basically good works by prayer and alms, by prayer and charity. And so the reason they're swinging this chicken around their head is an act of... Forgiveness. To be forgiven. Good works for the sake of forgiveness. Really, that is not much different than many of the sacrificing of other animals and other pagan religions. It's very sad. When they are done with their pigging out and they go to the temple, like I said, they do the cold nidre and whatnot, the shofar gathers the people to the synagogue. Everybody's going to be wearing white clothes, symbolizing purity. As Isaiah talks about, our sins have been made as white, you know, white as snow. Many of the men, the Orthodox, will spend the night, all night, in the synagogue reciting the Psalms and being in the Word. Many different services are, are done. And then as soon as the fast is over on Monday night, they will be going home to build their sukkahs because they are ready to dwell with God. And so Monday night in Israel, 
sukkahs are going, they're going home to start building their sukkahs. Now we know that it doesn't start until Friday night, but they're already looking forward to it. Here is part of the prayer. I'm not going to read it all, but again, just for you to get the flavor of what's going to be read. And this isn't bad, but the sin of repentance um, that they will say ten times in the synagogue here tomorrow night. We have transgressed, we've betrayed, we've robbed, we've spoken slander, acted perversely, have wrought wickedness, sinned sin willfully, we've been violent, we've accused falsely, we've counseled evil, and it goes on and on and on. Basically, what they're going to do is this confession lists a transgression or sin for one of every 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. It's followed by what's called the Al-Chet, for the sin confession, which then presents two misdeeds for every letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So they confess these sins, usually bent over in humility, rocking, beating their breasts with each offense that's being read, literally beating their breasts in the synagogue. I think traditions can become very hollow, and yet traditions can also be very important. It, it isn't the tradition itself that's the problem. It's the heart of the people that be, makes it the problem. And that's, I, I mentioned this, you know, when we went through Hebrews, I think. I love that line in, um, oh, what's the big play? The um, Fiddler on the Roof. How do you keep from falling off the roof? The answer, tradition. And it's so true. Tradition is important. Our God is a very traditional God. And what I find fascinating is those churches that are more traditional have a loyalty and a steadfastness throughout the years that I don't see in a lot of churches that don't have tradition. I think there's value, but I think the tradition needs to A, be biblical, and B, it cannot replace God and his word. And so... Just like there's a danger in anything, there is a danger in tradition, but there's also, I think, a blessing and an importance of it. The festivals are very traditional. And so I don't want to throw all tradition under the bus. I think where many denominations have gone wrong is it has been elevated to scripture level and it has just become rote to where it means nothing. Even in Judaism, obviously, that has happened. So it's a good reminder well, anyway, they are gonna, they're supposed to contemplate throughout the night the meaning of these sins and basically consider who they are, who they want to be, and for this next year to resolve to be better people. A New Year's resolution, you might say. As I said, everything is going to be closed, closed down. It is the only fast day that is uh, not postponed if it falls on a Sabbath. If it does normally, they, they postpone it, but not this one. If it's on a Sabbath, you still fast. And as I said previously, barred people are welcome to come to the synagogue if they repent. They're going to have a mandatory fast for boys that are 13 years old and older and girls 12 years. If you're sick or younger, they, they don't require you to do the fasts. And as I said, no entertainment. The fact that the high priest is very busy is interesting. If you go back in Leviticus and you see the description of what it says in Scripture, there are 81 verbs of what the high priest had to do. As I said, he was very busy. 
only four verbs for the congregation. Those four have nothing to do with any act of works or forgiveness of anything like that. Nothing to deal with atonement. This exact sentence in Hebrew in Leviticus says, you shall not do any work that we saw earlier in Leviticus is found only seven times in the entire Hebrew Bible. I could list them here. I'm not going to give them to you right now, but bottom line, six of them are in the Torah. Okay. Of the six occurrences, four of them are commands relating specifically to this Day of Atonement. The other occurrence outside of there is in relation to Passover. And so what's fascinating to me about that and encouraging at the same time is that the two most redemptive significant days on the calendar are Passover and Atonement. The Feast of Atonement, or Yom Kippur here, and the Feast of Passover, both of them that I think is what are fulfilled with well, you know, uh, the cross, to Jesus on the cross. And both of them are when God says, you are to do no work. It's encouraging to me because what it means is, you can do nothing to be forgiven on your own. I really believe that's the point of this, is that he's saying, this is the job of the high priest and the high priest only. You guys sit back. Sit back and receive the mercy and grace of God. It is not an accident that that's the only time that these phrases are used in such a way. And that takes us to the New Testament here in Romans 3.25 where it says specifically about Yeshua going to the cross for us, God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith, not through works, through faith in his blood. I find it fascinating the church doesn't want anything to do with this, and yet the Bible clearly tells us Jesus is the day of atonement. He is the sacrificial atonement. And you say, yeah, but that's what we have Easter for. Or that's what we have Christmas for. I don't know what they have for it. No. This is what the Bible said it was for. It's about Jesus. And he says it's forever. And it's not about bulls and goats. It's about the Son of God. Hebrews 9, but Christ came as high priest of the good things to come. Not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all having obtained eternal redemption. Not year after year, eternal redemption. Very significant for us as Christians, what we're celebrating here. This is not a Jewish festival. This is a Lord's festival that indeed was for the Jewish nation that you have indeed been grafted into, and therefore it has become your festival as well. We talked about this in Revelation a little bit, but just to kind of remind you of 
the Feast of Trumpets, maybe being the end of the seals of Revelation 6, I don't know. All I know is that the Bible tells us is that the Lord is coming back at the sound of the last trumpet. And as soon as he comes back, we see Judgment Day beginning. But when he comes back, we see that there's this period of other judgments going on. Maybe that's the days of awe. And then when Judgment Day occurred, which was Revelation 20, we saw books were opened. The Jews see on the Feast of Trumpets books being opened, and then now on Yom Kippur the books are closed because now it's final. During these ten days of awe, it's your time to repent. You want your name written and not blotted out of the book of life. We talked about that last week. May your name be written in the book of life. And you have these 10 days, this period of testing to where you can repent. But when those 10 days are up, it's too late. It's now judgment day. And they see that as Yom Kippur. The books are shut. It's over. And you think, well, how can that be joyous? Well, because he rules in your favor, as we talked about many times when we went through Revelation. And after atonement is Sukkot or tabernacles. And that's when we see the wedding banquet of the Lamb, living with God, he lives with us. It's a great celebration. And so, again, just like the spring festivals point to his first coming, even the Jews see the fall festivals as the Lord's return. They see the Messiah coming, but we see it as him returning a second time. Also to remind you, Colossians 2.16, which is often used as a, by modern Christianity as a reason to not celebrate these festivals. So let no one judge you in food or drink or regarding a festival or new moon or Sabbath, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. The church today typically means, says that this means you're not to do the festivals, you're just supposed to follow Christ. Christ is what they were all about. He came, so be done with them. I see this as saying quite the opposite. Don't let anybody judge you in regard to these things. Okay? They are a shadow of things to come, and the substance is of Christ. So as you celebrate these, remember Christ. Notice the word here that I think is very important. These are a shadow of things to come. This is in the New Testament, post-cross. These are present tense, not past tense. They, not, they weren't, were. So, very important. Am I giving you another one for <laughs> the week? Another Brianism? <laughs> okay, all right. Yeah. So anyway, keep that in mind. The substance of this is Christ. And I agree with the, the criticisms of those who say we shouldn't be doing these, that if you're going to do this without Christ, it is pointless. It is weak. It is powerless. But if Christ is the substance, I am telling you, it is the most rich, beautiful, wonderful thing to celebrate. And we celebrate it the way God outlined it in Scripture to celebrate it. Christ is and always will be the substance of this festival. 
Now the priest had to be clean before he could enter the most holy place. That's why there was a bull that was sacrificed for him before he could make a sacrifice for the people. He'd wash his hands and his feet before he could go into the holy place. Remember when Yeshua died, the curtain was tore, giving us access to the most holy place. As I said, that's why we can be seated with him. But how beautiful, because it is Christ who has cleansed us. It is Christ who has made us high priests. Ultimately, Christ is the high priest, but we are priests. Leviticus 16.2 says, And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron your brother not to come at just any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat, which is on the ark, the ark of the covenant, lest he die, for I will appear in the cloud above the mercy seat. See, Aaron couldn't go in just any time, only this one day a year. And then Yeshua comes, and that curtain is ripped in two, so that you can now go before the throne of God, the mercy seat, and have atonement every day, not once a year. It goes on here about these priests in Leviticus 16. Thus Aaron shall come into the holy place with the blood of a young bull as a sin offering and as a ram of a ram as a burnt offering. He shall put the holy linen tunic and the linen trousers on his body. He shall be girded with linen sash, with linen turban. Uh, he shall be attired. These are the holy garments. Therefore, he shall wash his body in water and put them on. Notice all the linen. Very important, because that is not what the priest normally looked like. I went through this at some other point in the past. Holy cow, that is grainy. Terrible picture, but we see that the high priest was decked out any other day of the year. This time, it is only with white linen. So we see that the priests, or the the synagogues today, they don't have priests, but all of them wear white. And so tomorrow night, if you'd like, just dress up in white. This was what God commanded Aaron to do. But what's significant about that isn't that you guys do this, because again, the sacrifice has been done. The significance is this. On the Day of Atonement, the priests took off all the glory and the beautiful garments that they would normally have for this robe of purity. Philippians tells us this about Yeshua. He humbled himself and took the form of a man. The king of glory that was decked out in all glory took off his heavenly dwelling and put on the flesh. What's that? Well, we're going to get to the white because it's not an accident that before he goes to the cross, where does he go? To the Mount of Transfiguration. And at the Mount of Transfiguration, he's beaming. And it says, the scripture says, whiter than what anybody could bleach them. Why is that recorded in Scripture? Now, without the Day of Atonement, without understanding that, there really isn't anything but symbolism there that we make up. I'm telling you that to those disciples 
And to those, the readers of the book of Hebrew, they know exactly why that happened. It is because he was taking on the high priest role. He took off his heavenly glory and put on purity and that glow of the Father. Do not lose as well that he is the son of the Father that is doing this. You're going to see, as I'm going to describe further here, the priest that went in was to be the son of the Father. Jesus humbling himself, taking off his heavenly glory, he kind of looked like any other priest in some ways this way. This guy looked like any other priest on that day, wearing the white linen. Only the high priest was decked out like this, but any other priest, he, he just, he humbled himself. And I, I know that this foreshadows Yeshua, our great high priest. And it gets better. I, I, I almost get choked up thinking about this. When this high priest goes in and he makes this offering, those clothes are never to be worn again. And he's going to take them off and he's going to leave them there. Our high priest, when he went and made this offering, is going to leave his clothes in the grave. That was not an accident. Why does scripture record that? Because he's trying to tell you something. He's trying to tell you what your high priest has done. He put on the heavenly glory. He was wrapped in linen. And then he folds it up neatly and he leaves it there just as these high priests are going to fold up their clothes neatly. And then they had a storage thing. Sometimes later they started using them for the wicks of the fire on the candles that, you know, for Sukkot. Just amazing to me. I think that's a clear picture, scripturally, that Jews understood. Just like in the book of Hebrews, they don't say, hey, by the way, this is the day of atonement. They didn't have to say it. They all knew this was atonement. Wasn't this the day they did the goat, the scapegoat? Yeah, and we're actually going to be getting to that too. Another picture of this, when the blood was offered, when the high priest would go in and offer this, he would pour blood out on the mercy seat. <laughs> Now, picture the mercy seat. What's the mercy seat look like? It's the Ark of the Covenant. What's there on the either side? The cherubim. When Jesus makes his offering, folds up his garment, what's on either side of him? <clears throat> there are angels on either side. As you read in Scripture, when the disciples go there, there's an angel on either side of the bench. The bench would look like the Ark of the Covenant. You've got an angel on both sides, making it look like the Ark of the Covenant. Jesus is going in and he is making or being the sacrifice of atonement for us. Revelation 3.17, because you say I am rich, you have become wealthy, you have need of nothing and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich in white garments that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. I point this out as we talked about in Revelation, our white clothes 
are a symbol of purity. And that is what Jesus, his, his pureness, the glory of him shining was. That the offering he made was purely sinless. Because he was sinless. That's one reason why the blood and goats in the past couldn't redeem. Not only was the high priest sinful, but these are animals in a sin-filled, cursed world. They're themselves waiting for the redemption of the, the sons of God to be revealed. Revelation 19.8, talking about the bride, was granted her to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. Notice that righteousness, the acts of the saints, obedience is a part of this righteousness. We've talked about that many times, so I'm not going to go into it because there's so much more that needs to be covered here. But Mark 9, 2. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led him up on a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. Again, not an accident. I just want you to see that here. But let's get to these goats. I've, I covered this last year, but I want you to see it again. When it talks about this day, in Leviticus 16, it says, He shall take from the congregation of the children of Israel two kids of the goats as a sin offering, one ram as a burnt offering. The two goats make a sin offering. Notice the two goats together make a single offering. The, the rabbis make note of this. The goat. They say that, you know, goats is plural, but they have a singular qualifier for it. And when the scriptures do that, there's a reason for it. And that reason was it's trying to point you to, to Yeshua. A singular offering. You can see here pictured, a little better, but not much. <laughs> You have your high priest there had two assistants. On the right was the prefect, and on his left was the head of his father's house. Okay, that's just what the Jewish records in the Talmud explains. I'll, I'll talk about that here in a moment. You see, <clears throat> we cannot cover our own sin. We can't cover it, we can't forgive it. Any more than you might have a thief that goes into a before a judge and expects to be exonerated saying, hey, well, I, I helped an old lady across the street. I don't care how much good work that thief does, it doesn't exonerate him from his thieving. It's no different with us for sin. It doesn't matter how good you are, it cannot take away your sin. The only way that sin can be taken care of is if, it, if the punishment the whatever it is, uh, I can't think of the word right now, is paid. You're fine. You're, 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 you know, you're 10 years of prison. You're, you're sentence. That's the word I was looking for. Difficult word. Your sentence is taken care of. That's what it means for Jesus, the difference between covering and atoning. Jesus atoned. He took the punishment. That's that, that fancy word that's used in the King James, propitiation. He took your place 
suffered in your place. Because you see, he couldn't just say, I forgive you. He had to come and take it, atone for it. And I think that's an important distinction to make here. To see why your good works could never get you there. Any more than the thief. So it- Going, our, our good deeds cannot cover or erase what we have done, the bad we've done. Only God can do that. Even in the parables foreshadowing Jesus being our atonement. He says, therefore I tell you in Luke 7, your sin, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to grumble and say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? The Jews knew only God could forgive sins. I remember listening years and years ago, Dr. Laura. I don't even remember who that, but Dr. Laura. And people would say, well, you know, so-and-so, but I've forgiven her. And she would uh, many times say, no, you, you can't forgive. Only God can forgive. This is the premise she's coming from. <clears throat> Guys, the fact that Jesus could say, your sins are forgiven, that's huge. And that is why it was such a shock for these people, but that is what atonement meant. Only the high priest that was going to able to forgive these sins, really, to, to make atonement, could make a statement that way. He was setting them up that I'm going to be the atoning sacrifice. Well, the priest here, going back to Leviticus, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but notice again, the priest who is anointed and ordained to succeed his father as high priest is to make atonement. That's why I was telling you to take note that on his left side is the, the, the head of his father's house, the one that's going to succeed. That's important because... Who is it? He's the one that takes the blood into the most holy place. Who is it that takes the blood into the most holy place? Jesus, the Son of the Father. Not an accident. Aaron is to cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other for the scapegoat. Basically what that high priest did is they stood and there was a gold lottery box in front. And inside the box, they would have two stones. Usually it was like a black stone and a white stone. And they would cast lots, and the priest would reach in, grab a stone. He'd reach in, grab a stone. So he had a stone in each hand, one black, one white. The black one was for Azazel, and then the white one was for the animal that was to be sacrificed. And... What would happen is, if the white one, which was for Adonai, was in his left hand, the the head of the father's house would say this, My lord, the priest, raise up your left hand. If it was in the right hand, the prefect would say, the guy on the other side would say, My lord, the priest, raise up your right hand. They would put the lot on the respective goat's head, tie a a scarlet cord around their necks, and then take them off to be sacrificed or out into the wilderness for the other one. Later they started tying this red 
cord to the temple or tabernacle door. And I know most of you know where that's going. But in verse 9, it says, Aaron shall bring the goat on which the Lord's lot fell, the one for Adonai, offer it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell to be the scapegoat, the one for Azazel, shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement upon it and to let it go as a scapegoat into the wilderness. Interesting. One was alive, but some say, some records say that they would take it off and take it off the cliff. Others said they just took it so far into the wilderness you'd never see it again. All I know is you did not want this goat coming back into town because the priest would lay his hands on them showing that the sins of the people are going upon the animal and you didn't want your sins coming back into the community. Verses 11 through 14 then go on here to describe the, the sacrificing of this goat and pouring out the blood on the mercy seat and before the mercy seat and so on. And as I said, the cords were to be tied to the neck of the one being taken off into the wilderness. I know we've talked about this before, but I think it's still important to bring up since we're talking about this festival. Um, there was a miracle that they record would happen is that this red cord, this red string, would miraculously turn white, showing that God had taken away their sins. And Isaiah tells us that though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. So they were very familiar with this verse. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Well, I'm going to show you, there's, this is in a couple of different places in Jewish literature. And this is what it says um, in the Talmud, Rosh Hashanah 31b. For 40 years before the destruction of the temple, the thread of the scarlet never turned white, but it remained red. The miracle stopped. Yoma 39b, in that tractate, it says, During the last 40 years before the destruction of the temple, the lot for Adonai did not come up in the right hand as it always did. All of a sudden it would be, it was just miraculously, they'd reach in and boom, in your right hand was the white stone. It didn't happen anymore. It did not come up in the right hand. Nor did the crimson colored strap become white nor did the westernmost light, the light in the temple, shine. And the doors of the temple would open by themselves. These doors of the temple were so thick and so big, it took many people to open them. They wake up in the morning, they're open. The light's out. And the light was never supposed to go out. It's almost as if God was sending them a message. The temple sacrifices are done. Now, again, they say for 40 years before the destruction of the temple, we know the destruction of the temple was in 70 A.D. That means at 30 A.D., this miracle of the red th thread stopped. Why? Gee, I wonder. Because Yeshua became our sacrifice of atonement. And God was saying, even in the book of Hebrews, he was warning them. Guys, this is, this is done. There's a better sacrifice what do the rabbis say? There was too much rebellion and ungodliness and many people followed a false messiah and that's why the miracle stopped. God was angry because you were sinful. That's what they say as you go and read on in these Talmud records. 
Sadly, some Christians have looked at this and say, well, that's because God rejected the Jews after this. That's not what Scripture says. Romans 11.1, 1, I asked them, did God reject his people whom he foreknew? Not at all. By no means. So that's not the right interpretation. Ezekiel's prophecies about the third temple also include future sacrifices. If you go read in Ezekiel 46 or read Zechariah 14, there are future sacrifices. So what's that all about? If Jesus is the fulfillment of it. Well, <clears throat> the Messiah died once for all. Forgiveness has now gone viral. There's no question about that. But the sacrifices you see in Ezekiel and Zechariah Zechariah, are not um, sin offerings. They're thank offerings and things like that, but not sin offerings. The Day of Atonement was a sin offering. It's done. The blood sacrifices stopped when the temple stopped, so they needed something else, so a substitute for prayers. Prayers and giving of alms, as I said before, is now what they teach to make atonement. That is evil. That is wrong. The rabbis talked about having deeds weighed. You're good against the bad. And I think that's, the reason I bring that up is because that's still how they see these 10 days of atonement that we've just, or 10 days of uh, awe that we've been going through here from trumpets till now is a weighing of goodness. And that's how they see it. And we must not look at it that way. We look at it as repentance because repentance is a good thing, but not a matter of weighing and being able to be good enough. But that's how they see it. Okay, that there are names to be written in the book of life. You have to do enough good to outweigh your bad. That's not Christianity. That's not the Day of Atonement. It's not what God intended for the Day of Atonement. But that's what they were forced to make it when they rejected Yeshua. And you no longer have a temple to make sacrifices. What are we going to do? Well, let's come up with some explanation. And here it is. And that's why what we see today going on is not... It, for us to just go and, and follow... Judaism is a dangerous thing because they've changed the rules. I've talked about this before, so I want you to see it because it's timely. Remember, there were two goats. The two goats, one was for Azazel. Go do a word search on Azazel. You'll see it's a demon of the wilderness. The Jews have always seen that. So that's weird that you, you have these sins placed on a goat that is then taken to the demons. You might even say to hell. The other was the goat for Adonai and became the sacrifice. I love this picture because Jesus, why is this recorded in the Bible that there's this guy named Barabbas. His name means Bar, son, son of, Abba, Abbas, son of the father. Now you got two people, Barabbas, 
Son of the Father, Jesus, Son of God, Son of the Father, side by side. And what happens? A lot is almost cast, in a sense. One is taken out to the wilderness where we see Barabbas never talked about or seen or referred to again. Seemed to be an evil man. The other is taken and sacrificed on the cross. I really believe that there was a picture that was being seen there of these two goats with Barabbas and Jesus being, you know, the lot being cast in a sense. Which one goes? Which one's free? Which, one's, which one is sacrificed? He shall kill the goat, it says in verse 15 of Leviticus 16, of the sin offering, which is for the people. Bring its blood inside the veil. Do with that blood as he did with the blood of the bull and sprinkle it on the mercy seat and before the mercy seat. It is significant how the Jews record in the Talmud, even before the cross, how the blood was to be spread. It was like cracking a whip. It's a certain Hebrew word, ki uh, maslif, and it means... It's, it's a specific word as if you're whipping someone or cracking the whip. And that is significant because they were supposed to splatter the blood this way of cracking the whip. Okay? But again, this was to be the blood of the sacrificial, the one for Adonai. And Jesus, they whipped him. They whipped that sacrifice with that. It's kind of fascinating because I'm going to read from you Tractate Yoma 15 of the Talmud. He would take the blood from him who was stirring it and enter again into the place where he had entered and stand again on the place on which he had stood and sprinkle thereof once upwards and seven times downward, aiming to sprinkle neither up nor down, but kimas leaf, making one movement as of swinging a whip. And thus he would count one, one and one, one and two, one and three, one and four, one and five, one and six, and so on, one and seven. Then he would go out and put it on the golden stand in the sanctuary. So that is also repeated in the Babylonian Talmud. It goes on, have we not learned, he sprinkled thereof once upwards and seven times downward, that was done, ki maslif, like the movement of swinging a whip, um, and it goes on, and he says, Rob Judah showed it by a imitation of a lasher. So they know that this is as a lashing, a scourging. Rabbi Ovadia something suggests that it should be a motion as of whipping someone from across their shoulders downward. And some have even suggested that originally the word was ka, or ki matzliv, one letter difference, which means like a cross. But because of the obvious implications of that, most of the Jewish sages have now said ki matzliv, F, not V. So even in their own writings, there's these hints of a lashing of going to the cross. The blood trail would go all the way to the mercy seat, and that's exactly the trail that Jesus took 
when he sat down at the right hand of God to the mercy seat, the throne of God. The only time the blood was put on the altar of incense and on the horns was on this day of Yom Kippur. And the altar of incense represents prayers. And we know that Jesus is our mediator between God and man. There's one mediator between man and God, the man Jesus Christ, it says in Scripture in Timothy. A perfect picture. Verse 20, When he has made an end of the atoning for the holy place, the tabernacle, and meeting the altar, he shall bring the live goat. Aaron shall lay both his hands on his head, uh, confess over it all the iniquities, and basically then send it away to the wilderness by the hand of a suitable man. Find that interesting too, that it was a hand of a suitable man that led this other scapegoat out into the wilderness. The sages also record this in the prayers that were said to lay the hands on to save some time. I'm not going to read it tonight, but it's a beautiful prayer of confession. And what's interesting here in that, as I said, Azazel, it was called the Azazel goat. Just do your own research on it, but again, it's like taking it out to the demons. Here it is again in verse 21, but they did not want those sins to come back. As I said, as far as the east is from the west, they wanted this goat gone. Well, according to tradition, there was quite a commotion occurred when the goat began his journey out to the solitary place. It was very like, almost like if you remember at Purim, Esther and the stepping on Haman's ears and, and just every time Haman is, ah! It was that kind of commotion going on. It says the goat was greeted along its way when they would pull its wool, spit on him, and prick him. Yeshua, our sacrifice, remember I said there are two goats, but it was called one sacrifice. Yeshua is both of them. He took our sins as far as the east is from the west. He went and descended into hell. He was the one they spit on, pulled at his beard. Even, you know, pricked him later with it, but they were beating him and prodding him and doing all of those things as well as he was going to the cross. And not only that, but there was a suitable man that was selected out of the crowd. We see all of these things spoke of for Yeshua. Matthew 27, as they came out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. Him they compelled to bear his cross. Some think this is a Simon we see later that is a follower of Jesus, a suitable man. Okay, we know that the Bible says in Matthew 26, 67, they spat in his face and beat him. Others struck him with the palms of their hands. Isaiah 56, I gave my back to those who struck me my cheeks to those who plucked out my beard or the beard. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. That's the kind of thing we see going on here. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the sin, the iniquity of us all. Just like the priest laid the sin on that goat. There is no question Yeshua is the scapegoat. So I've already mentioned that the priests here, I just want you to show you in Scripture, the Aaron said, 
shall come into the tabernacle of meeting, shall take off the linen garments which he put on when he went into the holy place and shall leave them there. That the Talmud here records that these garments were never worn again. I explained to you Jesus took off that. But also I want you to see that he did leave his garments not only in the tomb, but that's also a picture that he would never again put on that human flesh the way he had that time. His human garments. He will never not be in full glory again. 2 Corinthians 5.16, There from now on we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. I think that's also part of this flesh being taken off. And getting ready to close here, um, just again, a picture of the mercy seat. The mercy seat, the, the covering is called kapor which is where we get this word Yom Kippur. It's from that same word of atonement. Okay? Um, the lower half here is called the ark. The upper half is called the mercy seat, where God seats, sits between the cherub. But that mercy seat, the ha kaporet, is from that word atonement. And forgiveness, basically. When the devil says you can't be forgiven or you're too far gone, remember the power. And what's fascinating here is this word kaporet is from the word power. Let me show you here. It's, it literally means the power of God. And so the mercy seat is the power of God. Yeah, you don't have the power to be forgiven or to, to do those things, but God does. And it's because of the mercy seat, because of atonement, Kippur, made for you. That is the power of God. Christ is the power of God. Just like Moses called the mercy seat the power of God. So that's kind of what I wanted to see here, just show you in Numbers 14. And now I pray, let the power of my Lord be great, just as you have spoken, saying, the Lord is long-suffering and abundant in mercy forgiving iniquity and transgression, and so on. 1 Corinthians 1.24, But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. James 2.12, So speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty, for judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So these are just things to kind of remember. The Lord's Prayer as well. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. God has forgiven us our trespasses, and we need to be forgiving with one another. Um, you know, just a side note, probably shouldn't share because I'm out of time, but I'm going to because I'm pretty well done. Hall of Famer, Sandy Kufo or something like that. I don't know. Yeah, who is it? Koufax. Koufax. There you go. Yep. Sandy Koufax. He was one of the most famous Jewish athletes in the American sports, and he was a Hall of Famer. He made national headline news um, when he refused to pitch in the first game of the World Series in 1965 because it fell on the day of Yom Kippur. When 
Koufax's replacement, Don Drisdale, was pulled from the game for poor, for poor performance. He said this to the Los Angeles Dodgers coach or manager, Walter Altson. I bet you wish I was Jewish too. <laughs> I just thought it was kind of cool. The sacrifice, a World Series, and this guy wouldn't do it. What sacrifices are you willing to make to remember the sacrifices God has done for you? Not because it gets you better up on the notch. Not because it, you know, takes away any of your sins. But because you're grateful to God for what he has done, being that atonement for you. As God declared to the prophet Zechariah, I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. That's what Yeshua did. In a single day, removed the iniquity. Amen. That is the greatest love story that he gave his life for you. And it isn't one that we're supposed to go away solemn and somber about because we don't know if we've done enough good or, or if the repentance comes. No, we are to go away with joy knowing it has been done. You have been forgiven. You have been made new. The Spirit now lives in you. Praise God for this. And because of that, I am willing to afflict my soul as a remember or a reminder of that. To afflict my soul because I know the great cost. As we sung tonight, we'll never know the cost. But this we do in remembrance of him. So, with that, I think I'm going to close and not talk about these. Just know that Yeshua did not enter a copy of the holy things. Like I said, this week we'll be talking, or next week we're going to be talking about the, the tabernacle. He went into the authentic, but Christ came as a high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. You are part of that tabernacle. There's also an aspect of it there in heaven that we'll talk about. But um, that's pretty remarkable. And this is what Hebrews is talking about. Don't, don't twist that into saying, oh, these things are null and void and you're not supposed to do it anymore. Take it as what it is. This is the substance of Christ that we're celebrating. That's what it's there for. So let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word, for your truth, for your sacrifice. May we just go away joyful knowing what you have done, the sacrifice, the atoning sacrifice that's been done. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. I'm going to read for you before you go. It's officially done, but I want to show you a testimony here from one for Israel, a Jew named Eliza. She began her journey to faith in a synagogue on Yom Kippur in 1965. She listened to Leviticus 16 that gives, her, that gives in great and, great and glory detail what had to be done on the day. When this reading was concluded, the prayer book of that time continued. Accept our prayers instead of sacrifice. That's in some of the confessions they make. Accept our prayer instead of sacrifice. Remember, that's how they re replaced it. Eliza immediately said to herself, that can't be right. That's too easy. Sometime later, she met believers who were able to tell her something of Yeshua, and she began to read the Bible. 
She found the passage in Leviticus, but indeed it did not give her prayer as an alternative to sacrifice. She kept reading and began to understand that as a Jew, she needed a high priest to intercede for her and to bring sacrifice of atonement before God. Eventually, she read the letter to the Hebrews, the ultimate commentary on Leviticus. See, when she reads Hebrews, she gets atonement. When she reached chapter 8 to 10, through 10, she understood, and by the time she read Hebrews 10, verses 19 through 23, she asked Yeshua to be her high priest. Eliza always says that she did not ask Yeshua into her life. Rather, she asked if he would have her in his. And so he did. And she testifies that as, she very, as, the, as the verse promised, he has been faithful ever since. So take that with you as well.